Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again, looking forward to Saratoga. I was up there yesterday getting the house in order. Town looks great. It's such a fun place right before the meet. Got this Christmas Eve kind of feeling. We'll be talking about Saratoga a lot on this show, but it's not actually the topic of today's show. We've got a couple of exciting guests coming up. Going to be talking about the Queen. Plate looking ahead to the phasing Tipton sales next week as well. But before we do that, I'm going to bring in my co host for today to look back a little bit at Royal Ascot and a trip that was his first to ever to that historic meeting. Here is Windstar Farms' Sean Tugel. Sean, how are you today? Doing fantastic, Pete. Good to, ha- good to be back in the U.S. Uh, but uh, it was fun to. Uh, to be guided around Royal Ascot by, by yourself, who has <laughs> had uh, many experiences over there. And uh, what, what an experience it really was. And, and uh, I'm, I, was, I was blown away by, by not only the racing at Ascot, but uh, just the excitement that surrounds the place and uh, the hospitality that, that they show everyone there at, at all levels of entrance. And um, so, I, you know, it was just it was a fantastic experience. And uh, and uh, Certainly, if you haven't been there before, it's, it's a must. It's a must see. So you used a great anyway. phrase when we were chatting about it offline. You described the, the one of the seven wonders of the racing world. I kind of like that. What struck you the most about it? There's so many elements you could point to that make that a meet unlike any other. What stands out to you? You know, the one thing that uh, looking back upon it, I mean, obviously the the presence of, of the queen. Um, and, and, and the title of Royal Ascot uh, certainly sets it apart. I mean, I can't think of any other, you know, you have, you have the, the, the walkover with, with the, my old Kentucky home and, and, the, and the Kentucky Derby. Uh, the Queen's procession to kick off the day is certainly something that ranks very high up there. Um, where can you be within 10 feet of, of the majesty? So that, was, that, was, that obviously sets it apart. Um, <clears throat> I do think festival-like atmosphere um i think that you know the 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 car parks before and after the the uh races are are quite a special feature for as well and then um you know obviously it all boils down to the racing and the spectrum they have on racing six races a day which i think is is quite different from our big days where you see 12 13 14 marathon type days you know the the quantity the quality and and the quantity are uh very matching obviously i only went the one day but you know it's one of those places where you do want to go all five days and um so it's uh quite a place I think that's a good point about, and I understand why our racing days are what they are in many ways, as great as some of our racing experiences are. Racetracks in America, among other things, are big TV studios, and getting these races beamed out to all over the country and all over the world is an important way that we generate revenue. But in terms of the fan experience, the ability to have it be the end of the day and to be left wanting more, it's something that the Brits do really well. And even with the way that Ascot's now expanded to five Five days, the Cheltenham Festival to four days. Still, from our American perspective, to their perspective, sometimes I think they feel like it's been, you know, stretched a little thin. But for us, it it, it definitely makes it a lot more uh, consumable. And while 
I don't know that that's the right way for USA racing to go because of the way we make our money here. It is something I'd certainly be at least open to ex- experimenting with as a, as a way to potentially solve uh, some problems in terms of uh, horse population, etc., while still creating a top-notch experience for racing fans and betters potentially. I just I throw that out there. Does it sound does that sound crazy to you or does that sound like something that might work in the United States? No, but I think this goes back to uh, our industry all needing to be connected and having all of your jurisdictions connected. Because you do have, for example, this coming week, Naira has you know, put together the Stars and Stripes program. They have the three days of racing around Belmont. You have Derby Week. <clears throat> but I think, you know, with the beauty of, of Ascot is, and, and European racing, is all of their best horses go from meet to meet and there's a there's a proper schedule of of their elite races and that's something where we lack and where we get the small fields is there's almost an oversaturation of you know your grade one events or your grade two events too close together and so your top athletes tend to not run against each other as much i mean you go back and you look at blue point a horse obviously um is retired now after his his double that was done only by Choisir, I think, 20-some years ago, I think three times in the history of me. Um, you know, and, but it brought the, the elite horses of that division to that spot, and then those elite horses from that division will go to the July Cup. And there's more of a, a pattern for those races. I think if we could get closer to that type of model where you're elite horses, there's a, there's a good schedule where, you know, every four to four weeks, five weeks, there's one of those spots where the best of that division have to come together. You, you may be able to have each of these racetracks have that weekend of festival like racing. But uh, I think that's probably the difference between the two. All right. Enough about Royal Ascot. I went pretty much directly from there up to Toronto for last weekend's Queen's Plate celebration, which was amazing. And I feel very lucky to have somebody associated with the winner of that race about to come on and join us now. Welcome to the show, Bloodstock agent, Brooke Hubbard. Brooke, how are you today? Hi, I am doing good. Um, My voice is actually finally almost back to 100%. (laughs) (laughs) I I lost it uh, Sunday, so... Oh, it, I was going to guess it was gone about the time that uh, one bad boy uh, hung on and got the job done on Saturday night, but it, uh, it it stayed with you and then went away overnight. It was one of those cases of laryngitis? Yeah, yeah it, it stayed with me through the night, so I could still celebrate, and then Sunday. <laughs> well, you got to uh, talk us through... Well, let's start right there, actually. What was this route that caused you to, to lose your voice? How, uh, how enthusiastic were you getting? What were, what were the words coming out of your mouth at that point? Um, I don't think there's too many words coming out of my mouth. Uh, our co-partner in the horse, Greg Hall, um, he invited a ton of buddies. Um, and we were all standing right along the rail watching him come home. And I actually was trying to look away. Um, the home stretch a little bit just because I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> and um, then they, they finally, everyone was yelling that we have it. And I looked up and he was pulling away. So then, then I was starting to yell a little bit, but 
give us a little bit of the history on this horse and how he how you got involved and what attracted you to him well um first i purchased him at the yearling sale uh human yearling and um i had his sister and we had um originally planned on pin hooking her and i had her at bridalwood and we got offered some money for her uh prior to the sale and she just turned out to be a really nice filly. Um, so when I saw him in the catalog, I had to go look, and he had a great walk. He was, you know, a little bit crooked, but overall he was, seemed like a nice horse. You never know. Um, so I knew when he went for 65, he was going to be a steal. Um, and then progressing, we also had him at Bridalwood, um, and he was turning out to be a really nice horse and brought him in probably about March. And Richard Baltus just kind of took his time with him. We actually stopped on him for a few months um, just because he was working so fast. And each time he would, he would get some shins. Um, so it's just it's amazing how far he's come. And thankfully, we've slowly progressed on him to where he is today. Otherwise, I think there could have been problems if we would have continued pushing early. Brooke, it's Sean. Um, want to expand upon how you shop the sale. Do the majority of your buys, are you going to the yearling sale looking for pinhooks as two-year-olds? I know you had a little, uh, some, some success over this spring as well with some pinhooks. Um, but is that the, the main way you shop a sale, or do you also do you have clients who are looking for horses to buy as yearlings and go straight to the races? So the majority of the guys that I buy for, they're comfortable buying with the idea to race. And if, you know, say a horse that seems to be precocious, then we'll take a shot at the two-year-old in training sales. Um, but generally, we buy to race. Um, but, I mean, this year, I, we got lucky again with the tonal list that I purchased. Um, and we sold them for 450 um, at the OBS April. So that was, that was exciting for the group. Um, but I know a couple of the guys were wishing that we still kept him after one bad boy just ran in the clean <laughs> plate. They actually just talked to me and said, man, we should have kept him. So, <laughs> uh, you, I'm sure you'll have a reason to remind them why they sold the horse down the road. So you, but, but that that's, I, I love when, when people are having success and, 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 uh, and, and how much uh, fun they have with it. That's got to be a great pleasure for you, especially picking out the horses. What about, uh, if you want to expand, and early on in your career, you were able to, um, to learn the trade underneath Dennis O'Neill. Uh, just having the ability to, to get, you know, people who have had extreme success like, like Dennis and, and purchasing multiple derby winners, uh, just being able to, to, to learn from him early on how, how much that helps you uh, getting your business started. Oh, I, I think, you know, thankfully Dennis saw something in me and helped elaborate on that. And it definitely helps to boost, um, you know, anything that I'm doing in this industry, just having his name behind me and um, his support. So it's been huge and he was a huge part, you know, starting out, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at the sales ground. Um, I would get lost walking from the restroom to 
so barn 12. So he really, he really helped me out and um, showed me the ropes, showed me where to stand to bid. Um, you know, I, I can't thank him enough for what, what he did for me. He's known, from what I understand, as an out, outsider to the business compared to you two, but as somebody who's particularly good with uh, equine physicality, specifically watching horses breeze and being able to know who's going to be a superior athlete. Is that a skill that he attempted to, to teach to you in the time that you worked together? And, and how would you describe what you're looking for when you watch horses breeze? So, yeah, that, that is a big part of how he um, goes through the sales. Um, you know, he, he shortlists from the videos, as I want to say we all do. Um, and he showed me kind of how you want to see the knee movement, you want to see the horse level out, kind of relax. Um, a little green in the videos is okay, but you don't want to see, you know, their knees hitting their chins or, legs going left and right you want to just see clean straight forward movement and not too much knee action and i think that's where i give a little and i don't mind as much um you know flat knee a little bit higher knees okay but it it all depends on kind of your style and your preference and um i know a lot of people don't like longer grassy patterns but that's one thing that I particularly don't mind. Um, I've seen it go both ways, though. I've seen a couple of horses that I've purchased that it just hasn't worked out and a couple that have. So I think it's, it's all kind of a roll of the dice on that one. That was such a good description. I wasn't planning on asking you this question, but I'm going to now because talking about the way horses move, the way horses look – it can be difficult for some people to articulate it into words, but that was, that was a particularly good description. So I'll ask you about when you're looking at horses before a race and what kind of body language you like to see or don't like to see in that environment that, it, that might pretend a horse running well or poorly. Uh, well, you know, it's hard. It's hard with two-year-olds and three-year-olds. They're, they're still learning the trade and, and everything, but, uh, for instance, one bad boy, he tends to be a little bit nervous before the races, which for me, I'm not a fan of, but as long as he stays, you know, sane through it and is able to walk and relax a little bit, um, it's okay. Initially, when he went into the paddock at the clean plate, um, he had schooled in there the day before and he was okay. Uh, he went in, they backed him up in our in our box and they were saddling him and he kind of started popping up and, you know, all of us were a little bit panicked over that. Yeah. But then they got saddle on him. They walked in. We decided not to go out into the grass paddock where the band was. Um, we stayed underground, walked in there. He finally calmed down and was relaxing when he's walking. So all, all of that kind of stuff goes into play. Um, and for instance, blended citizen, he's, extremely relaxed before the races so you know if he's a little bit on his toes or starting to wash out something's not right with him um so it i mean that just plays into how they're gonna run and you never know sometimes they they run through it and sometimes they don't brooke uh 
to – I was just wondering if you wanted to uh, take a little walk down the shed row you have with uh, two-year-olds you have coming up. Uh, I know everyone in the business is getting pretty excited for the beginning of Del Mar and Saratoga only a couple weeks away. So what uh, what two-year-olds do you have this, this uh, year that, that you picked out and uh, are getting close to running? Um, let's see. We have a forehead kisses uh, with George Pospodromo. It's a orb silly. I bought her for 50000 at the Keelan sale last year. Um, and she actually, she's turning out, she's small silly, but she's turning out to be pretty nice. And um, we'll see. We'll see how she is. She'll be ready end of Del Mar. And then um, I have a filly named La Tub. Um, and she is, uh, she just got in, but she actually was one of my favorites that I purchased. Um, out of the OBS April sale. Um, let's see who else do we have. We, we I only I only purchased six uh, six two year olds this year for our stable. So um, we'll we'll see how that goes. Last year I purchased twelve, and um, we had you know our our handful of uh, problems, shins, uh, chips in the knees, and and whatnot. So it's been a slow start. Uh, for the two-year-olds from last year, so I is, is there, is there a, a little bit. <laughs> is there a Sorry. story behind the uh, Phillies name Latub, that infamous establishment down by the uh, by Gulfstream? Stream? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's just let's just say that we went there after, or actually, it was right before the sale, the night before the sale, and there was a big group of us there. We all had a lot of fun, so. I decided to name the silly Latub after that. <laughs> I'm always in favor, <laughs> always in favor of that type of uh, that type of naming convention. Um, I wanted to ask you about your other your other other racing job, being racing manager for CJ Racing. How long has that been part of your responsibilities, and how do you go about balancing your different roles in the industry? Um, you know, it's a little it's a little tiring at times. But uh, majority of the time, it is just, it's awesome to be a part of both um, involved with the racing day to day and also all the sales. Um, but I've worked, I worked for uh, Steve Young for uh, five years now, and he actually got me started in the industry. Um, I had not been associated with racing at all, and um, he actually offered me a job to manage his horses. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so Dennis was a big <laughs> part of my crash course into racing um, and helped helped me around pretty much the track and the sales. Um, so, you know, I have to I have to thank Steve Young, especially because I don't know what I would be doing exactly right now if he didn't offer me a job. <laughs> That's great. For those who don't know, we have some listeners. We have a lot of industry listeners, but we also have a lot of carryover listeners from our other podcast who might not even really know what a racing manager's job is. How would you describe that role? So I, um, I'm, I'm kind of unique in that role because I purchase all the horses for them also. Um, so I have kind of a double vested interest in it, but pretty much I pick the trainers based on, where I think the horse that I'm purchasing for them fits. Um, I kind of help out with the trainers on picking the races. Majority of the time they do it. We just have to agree on it. 
Um, we agree on the jockeys, uh, the distance, the surface. So kind of all that goes into play also. And the horses need time off or something needs to be fixed. I'm the person that they call and I schedule everything for the horses. So I'm pretty much I'm a, the go-to person for anything to do with any of those horses. I imagine there's a fair amount of handicapping that goes into that role as well. Is that a skill that you had before you got into the industry or is it something you've developed as you've gone along? Um, that I've definitely developed. Uh, prior to working for Steve Young, I had been to the races one time uh, when I was 14 just to go and watch the horses. So um, actually, Steve Young is a really big better in California, and um, he has helped me learn the handicapping role and how how to go through a racing form. And we actually um, we use quite a bit of tools in handicapping. So um, yeah, I've I've actually surprisingly I've gotten pretty good at handicapping. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm a I'm a sure bet every time, but <laughs> I could definitely get probably one out of five so <laughs> hey if you're getting the right price then you're you're doing you're doing well with that you mentioned the tools so i'll ask a follow-up what what kind of stuff do you do you use i know there's uh, there's certain industry tools that some people use and then there's other more widely available commercial stuff how do you like to look at a race um i mean i generally like to just look at the racing form uh we also use um um thoroughgraph and we use, um, I can't think of the names of it right now. Um, uh, today's uh, Daily Digest. Gotcha. Today's Racing Digest, the California yeah. product. Yes, yes. That's... And they have in there especially a CPR, which kind of rates the horse on its last race. And um, my, my boss is extremely um, into using that as a tool. So... Very interesting how different people put together their own plan to try to figure out what's going to happen. Before I let you go, we'll, we'll end where we started, looking to one bad boy and what's coming up next. Is there a potential Canadian Triple Crown try in the offing? Or are you at liberty to uh, to talk about the future plans at all? Um, we, well, we've already kind of discussed our next future plan, and um, we are going to give the Prince of Wales um, a go. Um, and that's actually coming up on the 23rd. So um, we, we are going to attempt the Canadian Triple Crown. Um, we all kind of discussed it and thought, why not? Uh, our original plan was to send him back to Belmont and then wait um, and bring him down to Del Mar. And, uh, you know, since he did so well there, we thought we're, we're going to give the Canadian triple crown a shot excellent very good to hear brooke for people looking to get in touch with you what's the best way to to find you are you active on social media or is there a website that, that folks could check out um i'm active on twitter so anyone could find me at brooke hubbard your your handle is just your name you were you were that much of an early adopter <laughs> yes <laughs> um i actually well I think, it's, I think it's actually under Brooks World, but and I'm not too I'm not too sure. I don't check the names of those too often. Gotcha. All right. Well, we'll reach out on there. We'll tag you when we send the show around, and we thank you for your time today. All right. Thanks, thank Brooke. you, guys.
Cheers. And now I would like to welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast the founder of BSW Bloodstock and Elite Sales, Bradley Weisbord. Brad, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. There's so many different directions to go with you as a guest on this show. And uh, rather than try to feel pressured to get it all in, we'll just start with the obvious and talk to you about these sales next week, the Phasic Tipton July Horses of Racing sale and the Tuesday Yearling sale. I imagine you're a pretty busy man ahead of these events. No, we are. We take the sales very seriously, both as a selling aspect and a buying aspect. And my partner, Liz Crow, is the one who really shops for the yearlings. I'm, I'm not really involved in that. Uh, that's her area of expertise. That's not mine. So she's busy preparing, going through her catalog work, and uh, has a team. Uh, this sale, not really shortlisters because it's not as big of a sale, but generally she's assembling a team to get through that from a buying angle. But from a selling angle with Elite Arm, that's something that I'm involved with every day, and we're finishing up writing our Elite Fast Passes, which is all-encompassing information about each racehorse that we have to sell. And we're also going through our pre-sale vetting you know, we started last year, we started vetting these horses at the barns of their trainers because we didn't want to ship an owner's horse, get it to the sale and turn it right back around and said, you're not going to pass the vet exam. So we're interpreting all of that vet information. As you guys know, vets can be interpreted many different ways. And we just want to make sure our buyers have a great, uh, healthy group of horses to search through. Now, this will be the first time we're seeing some of the babies by freshman sires. Uh, it sounds like that might be a little bit more Liz's angle in than yours, but I'm just curious what, you're, uh, what, what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing, what you're excited about watching from that point of view. 100% it's, it's Liz's angle. Um, I'm never a believer of uh, listening to the smoke. You know, clearly there's a lot of smoke on sires that don't work out in many cases. Only one in eight are actually going to hit. So there's no way a lot of them can be the rage. It doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, naturally we're affiliated we're with Emshuish and we, we campaigned them with Al Shakab Racing, who I represent in the States. And we're excited to see some of his babies. But whether he's going to make it or not, or any of the other freshman class or yearling freshman signs, I, I have no um, opinion there. Bradley, one horse uh, I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on here that, that you had uh, quite a bit of uh, influence with on, on his campaign, who we'll see first yearlings from, and then we can go to the racehorse sale as Exaggerator. We all know uh, how influential Curlin is and him being three-time grade one winning son of Curlin. I'm uh, very excited to see his first crop. I know that uh, you managed him throughout his racing career, and, and you've been highly involved in his uh, early start to his stallion career. Just uh, see what your thoughts on, are on that horse and, and some of the uh, early representatives you've seen by him. Yeah, really excited to see what they can do eventually on the track, not necessarily at the yearling sales. Um, but what I will say about Exaggerator, speaking about on the track, a lot of people believed he needed a wet surface to be effective. Um, just so happens that his Haskell and his Preakness and even his Sandia Derby came in tracks with some moisture. What people don't realize is he ran second to Nyquist going seven eighths in the San Vicente on a fast dry surface. And Nyquist obviously was a champion undefeated two-year-old Kentucky Derby winner. Exaggerator was the first horse to ever beat him in the Preakness. So he ran that horse early on 
um, in his three-year-old year to a short defeat on a fast surface. So I, I am one that believes the wet surface had nothing to do um, with his success. It just so happened on some of his biggest days, they had the track happened to be wet, and some of the bounces, like in the case of the Belmont Stakes, um, the track happened to be dry. But I'm looking forward to seeing his babies. I believe they'll do have, they will have a little precociousness, and um, hopefully they can run as good as their dad. Don't forget he was a great stakes winning two-year-old on a fast track at Saratoga as well. So that's, that's something that, uh, that a lot of people just, his, his whole diversity of, of um, not only the amount of starts, but, but racetrack surfaces uh, were quite impressive. So uh, one, as far as you got, I know our consignment we're, we're looking forward to uh, coming up next week. What kind of horses do you have that you're selling that you think will be on people's radars? I got to talk to a little competitor now in your ear, Sean. Our draft this year uh, for, you know, Elite branded itself of selling the best and really a boutique model. And, you know, people saw that we entered 25, 27 horses and said, are you getting away from what you're doing? Um, the answer is no. We needed a nucleus because naturally there's going to be defections based on betting or sometimes owners deciding I don't want to part with this horse. So we're going to be down to around 8 to 10, maybe 12 horses max. You know, we said we'll never sell more than 15. So it's a very easy number for Liz, I, Jake, Caitlin to really explain to the people that come by the barn, our buyers, about these horses. I'm excited about a couple of them. Uh, I'll just touch on a few. Proverb is a three-year-old cult that goes long on dirt. We all know that there's very few three-year-old cults that can run, run long successfully in stakes on dirt. He's coming off of two uh, stakes placings, one in the grade three at Churchill on June 15th and the other one at Oakwan. He doesn't need his racetrack. He's run successfully at a couple different racetracks on Thoroughgraph. He's got a great line starting with an 18, getting down to sevens with trouble. So he's just behind the best horses, a son of flatter for Ron Moquette. And actually Ron mentioned that mentally he's just figuring it out which you can kind of see in his race replays. So I'm excited about him. He is going to scratch from the Indiana Derby and come right into the sale. So you'll have a fresh horse to run. That's our kind of our headline cult. As far as Phillies are concerned, we have It's My Lucky Charm, who won the stake at Gulfstream last weekend. She's actually finished first in seven of eight races. It only shows that she's won six of eight. She got DQ'd for one of them uh, when she actually won. So she's won three stakes since February. She's won stakes in slops, stakes in faster, and stakes on turf. So that's obviously a very well-rounded, uh, top-notch filly. So those are our three-year-old kind of top colt and filly. And then we have some older horses that I'm looking forward to seeing how they do this weekend. Wooderson's going to enter the Suburban, so we'll see how he runs. Obviously, it will be a tough race with Catholic Boy and others. But if he comes to the sale, he'll be a top prospect. And then we got, you know, a turf horse like a fullness of time or even the case of Salsa Bella, Sayuni, Philly, that's going to run on Friday at Belmont. So we're still putting everything together. We, I think we have uh, 14, 15 horses still left in the draft with five set to run this weekend. So it's a conversation worth having, I guess, on Sunday about our new shooters. But I touched on two of the, of the proven ones. Certainly, um, you, you've been very influential in, um, 
in private sales over the last several years, and now going with the elite sales and selling horses racing age, something that Winstar we've been doing for about the last eight, ten years as well. Um, you want to just touch base on, on, on the nice influence that horses racing age sales now have on the calendar, uh, especially for new owners that are getting in and, and, and being able to buy a ready-made horse, horse that you know in town has some ability that can win a race. Um, and then just the, how, you know, not only elite sales, but Windstar and, and other consigners and the, the amount of information that you can get on these horses. So certainly you, you and your consignment are, uh, are one, one of that lead by example. So maybe just want to. Yeah, no, I think, listen, at first, when you talk about the July sale, the horse and training sale, it's at a perfect time for two different reasons. Number one, Large owners, and these are the owners that are, have been gravitating towards selling with us. Those would be the Michael Dubs, the Sal Cumans, even the partnerships, the Let's Go's, Aaron Wellman's uh, partnership, Eclipse. They are going to be reshopping at the yearling sales. So with the yearling sales starting essentially a day later and rolling into August and September, they need to refuel their pockets as much as get rid of some racehorses. And that doesn't mean they couldn't go on and be great racehorses for the next guy, but the dream is always alive in the horse business, and all of these owners have the dreams of winning those grade one races. Sure. So a lot of our owners are selling listed stakes, grade three stakes, or even allowance horses to search for that dream, which starts the next day. Number two, as far as being an attractive time at the July sale, you're getting into the Saratoga, Del Mar, Big Purse, Everybody wants to show up in the summer with a live horse meets. And it's a great time that you can ship one, especially horses that haven't run so close to the sale. Like in the case of Proverb, this is a fresh horse. that can go breeze once, twice, three times and run in a stake at either of these locales. So I think it really fits both buyers and sellers. And I've always been a fan when you can make both parties happy, you have a great auction. And in the case of sellers, you have, uh, ways to get rid of your horses for you know market plus dollars at a good time before you're refueling and for buyers you're able to take those horses and go to the premium meets i think if in the sales in november sales specifically speaking it's a little more difficult because you're at the end of a long season and you got to be a little more patient with the approach and we've had a harder time recruiting racehorses in november because a lot of them would be so-called chewed up coming off long seasons. Now a lot of these horses are fresh in their prime, ready to go, ready to be sold, and ready to win for the next owner. It makes perfect sense. I mean, when you're buying a horse at the end of a long season and you're, you're, you're buying something, you don't want to put it on the shelf for a couple of months. You want to take out your new toy and see what it can do. And I think the timing of the, of the sale allows that for all the reasons you're saying. I want to ask you before we let you go a little bit about your handicapping process. I and mean, you've kind of tipped your hand mentioning watching replays, mentioning horses with trouble, uh, alluding to the sheets. But I'm just curious for you what the most important factors are when you're trying to figure out who's going to win a horse race and how to evaluate uh, the talent that you that you uh, put your hands on. All of those things you just said come into our mind when shopping privately for horses. So all we've done is take that mindset, put it on paper, and used it for our selling arm. And the reason, or one of the reasons that we started Elite was when we were racehorse buyers, we'd go to different consigners 
and we'd ask in questions and they would look at me like I had three heads. <laughs> Do you have the Ragason sheet? Do you have the thoroughgraph sheet? Do you have the thorough manager? What stakes is this horse eligible for? Did you watch its replays? Why did it run poorly last time? What happened during its two-year-old year? Why has it missed a certain amount of workouts? So what our fast passes and passports do is try to answer every question that the buyer would have. And not only do we want to answer questions, but we will give race suggestions on where this horse fits. We'll put together a stakes calendar for a certain locale or even cross country on where a certain horse fits. So we've only taken what we do as buyers and used it for sellers. And I think we were the first guy to do that. I know a couple other consigners, <laughs> Sean, um, <laughs> have have copped on, but it's important. Like uh, when you get copied, it's the best sign of it's, it's a flattery. It, it, it's a great sign for me. And I think it's going to make the business better. So all of the consigners have stepped up their game and we're here to service the buyers. I love to hear about all the data coming into it on on your side of the industry. It's certainly certainly fascinating. Do you bet the horses as well? Do you use? I mean, it sounds very similar to the information horse players are using. Is that, or, or do you feel like you have enough skin in the game with everything else you've got going on? I bet unsuccessfully. I had a great year last year, <laughs> my best year ever. Of course, I started to think I knew something, and my first six months have been terrible. I've reloaded my Express Bet account four times, and I can't tell you how disappointed I've been in my gambling. But I started as a handicapper. I was reading the paragraph sheets at 10, 11, 12 years old, and uh, using my chore money to gamble. And so I'll always bet. It's a part of me that I love. I love when we don't have runners, and I can sit there with my friends and bet and root and that's uh that's something that's ingrained in me well we're gonna have you back on the show very soon maybe we'll let you unleash some of that uh, handicapping acumen next time bradley weisbord thank you so much for your time today thanks guys sean i'll see you in kentucky sounds good brad all right sean before we wrap up this edition of the show I want to give you a chance to talk about what you've got going on at the sale next week. Anything you're particularly excited about? Uh, Certainly, uh, as we had uh, touched upon earlier, um, being able to see, you know, the first yearlings by by freshman sires. We've got four with uh, first yearlings. We've we've discussed Exaggerator, who was obviously by Curlin, three-time grade one winner, uh, stood for $30,000 as a freshman, had an excellent uh, weanling average last year, so very excited to to see his prospects. We've seen him on the farms. We've we've heard from breeders, you know, the excitement behind this horse, um, as well as horses like Spitzer, who was a horse who had an abbreviated career uh, due to unfortunate circumstances in a, in a training accident, but uh, being by Cyrus Cyrus Spitztown and and being out of a, just an enormous pedigree, uh, very very excited to see his first crop of yearlings as well as uh, the Breeders' Cup Mile, fastest of all time tourist, and uh, Outwork, grade one winner by Uncle Mo. So uh, those four stallions will all have their first yearlings, and, and we're very excited for those four horses. Uh, certainly had the racing resume, and uh, we believe they have the, uh, the, the physical resume to, to pass on excellent racehorses. And then, um, you know, one of our bread and butter models throughout the year is, is our racehorse consignment. Um, we've got eight this season. Uh, we have our own horses that we're selling, Coppertown, who's grade three place 
son of Spice Town. Uh, he's he's training at the farm. He's ready to to go on. We have the five star general who is a stakes winner as a two year old by distorted humor. Just ran second in the Stanton Stakes. Um, he's ready to go on and keep looking for stakes wins throughout this year. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Viola of St. Elias Stables. He's uh, going to sell some through us. We have his stakes winner, Clint Maroon, who's entered in the Manila Stakes uh, on the 4th of July. He's already a stakes winner this year. Uh, so we're looking for an update on that horse uh, before the sale. And, and he's a horse that can be bought and, and taken to definitely races, the big races at um, Saratoga and Del Mar. Uh, they have a filly called Aunt Hattie, who's, uh, who's a horse that's had multiple force and black type races. Um, she's going to love the added distance of turf stakes races as, as the Phillies division, as they start stretching out and, and becoming older Phillies. Uh, she's a very competitive Philly and uh, a horse that um, has been training really well. This can go for both the sale and, and for some handicappers uh, central park who we own in partnership with stone street stables will be making his first start uh, tomorrow, 4th of July at Ellis Park, a maiden special weight going a mile. Um, he's been breezing very well. His breeze videos are on our website where you can find all the horses that are in the, uh, the racehorse consignment. Uh, but we're excited to see him run, and uh, we're expecting him to, to show some, some ability and to run well. And, uh, and he'll be available for purchase as well come Monday at Phasic Tipton. So we got a really nice consignment, uh, eight in total. They, they range all, all divisions. And uh, there's something for everyone at uh, every racing jurisdiction, and they're good, sound horses that are in full training and and uh, ready to go on for the new owners. Well, we'll do a little bit of recapping, hopefully, of the sale next week. And as for you mentioning horses who are entered, uh, wouldn't be the first time you've given out a nice-priced winner on this show, Sean. So, folks, I can hear them. I can hear them over the airwaves, uh, furiously scribbling notes. All right, that is all the time we have on this edition of the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I want to thank Brooke Hubbard. I want to thank Bradley Weisbord. I want to thank, of course, Sean Tugel. Most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. We've gotten the show off to a nice start. We're going to keep them coming. And the, the, the response has been exactly what we were looking for from both horse players and people in the industry. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>